Welcome to the Briggs & Veselka podcast. Join our partners as we take a deep dive into growing your business and building a financial foundation that benefits your employees, clients, and vendors. The Briggs & Veselka podcast is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Ryan Gore. Hello and welcome to the Briggs and Veselka podcast. My name is Ryan Gore with Briggs and Veselka. And today we have Mike Tripkosh or Cyber Mike as he's known. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Hey, thank you, Ryan. Mike is the director of cybersecurity at Pathway Forensics and has worked on countless projects helping organizations build and organize their cybersecurity programs to defend against cyber attacks. So he's got a lot to say about uh, many of the things that are coming out online and in the media. And Mike, there are a lot of stories um, floating around about new cyber attacks occurring. But before we get into that, can you give a brief overview of what ransomware is and how it works? Sure. Ransomware is a type of malware that is deployed onto a victim's machine. And what it does is it it encrypts the files and folders on that machine to where they're unusable by the victim. Uh, they'll receive a splash screen on their monitor that directs them to pay a ransom in generally a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. And once they have paid the ransom, then they're provided with a a decryption key or a decryption tool that will unlock their files and make them usable again. So supposedly, if you pay, correct, <laughs> you're supposed to get your data back. Supposedly, yeah. The the numbers actually, Ryan, have went up because if if victims knew that once they paid, they still weren't going to get their decryption tools or the keys, then they quit paying. So the attackers are motivated to provide them with a key that works so that they can get paid and other people will continue to pay as well. It's almost like a, a brand imagery for the industry, right? Trying it to keep is. your brand reputation up. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that is kind of interesting. If Can you talk about, I think a lot of individuals and organizations see criminals as sort of lone wolf or lone actors. And there's really been a big transition where this is now a full-fledged business and economy even with solutions like ransomware as a service. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah, sure. So uh, ransomware as a service is generally ran by a group and then all other lines of business or all other uh, groups within that <clears throat> within that. Um, criminal organization are considered associates. So you may have one group that does the, uh, they find vulnerabilities or they find victims. You'll have another group that does the actual exploitation. One group will actually handle negotiations and another one is uh, the group that handles payments. So they've turned it into basically a business. A lot of them even have uh you know, like customer service where they'll they'll walk you through how if you're having trouble decrypting your files. Um, I mean, it's it's just like going to any e-commerce site, really. Wow. And, and I mean, how how is this coming about? What has made it so attractive for criminals to pursue this so deeply today? 
Right. So you've really seen an explosion of the extortion type of malware due to cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies like uh, Ethereum, like Bitcoin, have have made they're they're virtually untraceable. Now, what you're seeing in the news today is there's been kind of a shift in the last little while. Um, <clears throat> I'd say the last couple of weeks, you've seen a big, uh, big change with the colonial pipeline where the FBI was able to get back some of the money. But the cryptocurrency generally was thought to be untraceable. And so uh, criminals were able to move around anonymously and move money around anonymously. Yes. And as far as the size of the market, um, that seems to have grown just exponentially as well. Sure. So it was once thought of that, you know, they're only going to attack large organizations, but that isn't the case anymore. There's some groups attack smaller like individuals and ransom their home computers for the pictures or their music or whatever they have on there. But they take a smaller amount, but there's more targets. Whereas other groups will only attack large corporations and they're looking for the home run, so to speak, whereas other ones are going to take singles all day long. Wow. Yeah. And, and what, I mean, in, in that moment, should victims be paying the ransom? What are, what are some of the decision factors that people need to be considering there? And that's the, that's the main question. That's the big question. And it's, it's really every, every situation is different. Um, you law enforcement is going to recommend that you never pay the ransom. And while that sounds good, your business still needs to operate. And so if you have not developed a, uh, a business continuity plan, if you don't know how long your business can stay offline or you do know and you know that you cannot effectively rebuild your network in that time frame, you have no choice but to pay the ransom or you'll be out of business. So it really comes down to a risk decision. Can you rebuild and still uh, remain viable as an organization or do you have to pay because you're not prepared? Yeah. And, and can you talk about what are some of the ta tactics criminals are using um, when companies don't pay? I mean, what are the risks there? Yeah, sure. So what they call those are extortion models. And what we have is the the old original ransomware where we lock your computer and you pay us to get the key. Well, then uh, victims started to wise up a bit and prepare better. And they started uh, creating and taking backups more regularly that were uh, allowed them to rebuild and not pay the ransom. Then the criminals adapted and what they're doing now is a double extortion model where <clears throat> they go into your system and they're in there for anywhere from, you know, a week to several months and they're snooping around and they're moving through your network and they're finding the crown jewels, so to speak, your confidential and sensitive data. And what they do is they will exfiltrate that data sometimes gigabytes, 250, 300 gigabytes of data, maybe even a terabyte of data. And then as an incentive or a motivator to get you to pay the ransom, they threaten then to uh, 
uh, release that data publicly. And a lot of times it's confidential, maybe product information. It could be regulatory data where if they release that, you're going to you're going to be fined or have brand degradation or reputational damage that is, is, is going to be very uncomfortable for you. So that's another incentive for you to pay. The third model that they use is called triple extortion. We've only seen a couple examples of it, but what they're doing is, for example, if they were to go to a police department or go to some type of the, the case that I'm thinking of in particular was a psychiatric uh, clinic, and they went to each of the victims and sent them a note and said, if you'll pay this much, we won't release your information if oh, the gosh. clinic doesn't pay us and we end up releasing everybody else's. And so that's a triple level of extortion. So they're directly targeting even your end, end customers to put pressure on you to uh, to pay up. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's that's just wild. And and how long would you say, you know, I think hack, uh, people typically think of, you know, people hacking into the system, quote unquote, is such a rapid occurrence. But you're saying that they're potentially hiding and waiting in your system for weeks at a time even. Sure. They, I mean, there's examples out there where they've been in there for weeks, months. Uh, but just remember, the longer they're in there, that's the, the the greater the opportunity that the organization will will learn or determine that somebody's in their network. And so there's there's kind of a risk reward equation for the attacker that he has to think: the longer I stay in here, the more information I can gather and exfiltrate. But the longer I stay in here, I run the risk of getting outed, and then they lock out, lock me out, and I can't get back in. So what you're starting to see is the criminals are going in there and they have almost scripts and they'll attack like uh, they, they'll elevate their privileges very quickly. And then they know what they're looking for. They're going into, they elevate to admin administrative privileges so that they kind of can go anywhere and do anything they want. And they have certain areas that they're looking for certain types of accounts or group policies or you know, folders and things. Uh, and they look, they go right in there. Some of these larger ones, they were only in there for like four days and they found everything they needed and exfiltrated it. Whereas some of the earlier ones, uh, they were in there for over a month. So you can see that they're evolving. They know what they're looking for and they know how to find it very quickly. Yeah. So let, let's talk about some of these bigger ones that have happened in 2021, some really huge names um, and, and just massive ransoms being paid, such as the Colonial Pipeline. What what happened there? Well, the Colonial Pipeline was actually a vulnerability. It was a, uh, a VPN or remote access account that was was dormant. It was not being actively used. Uh, the password was was found to be in a breach, breach data that was already out on the the dark web. And the attackers found that and they were able to determine probably with, with an email address, none of this is confirmed, but it's supposition from the, uh, the group that did the forensic analysis of that. They feel like they found a password and they matched it with an email ID and that email ID was of a person that had worked at Colonial 
And so then they took a chance that the person used the same password in multiple locations throughout their digital ecosystem. And they tried it and it worked and they were in. And they were in, uh, I think the forensics said they were in like April 29th and Colonial Pipeline detected that the ransomware was, was being detonated. The payload was actually being detonated like May 6th, about 5 a.m. So they went there for about a week, found what they wanted, maybe determined that the confidential data wasn't worth it. They just locked up everything because they knew uh, that they kind of hit a ma- major home run with this with this attack. And they did end up paying? They did. Uh and there's there's a lot of backstories going on about that, but they actually paid uh, before they even made the public announcement that they'd been breached. They paid the ransom very quickly, and <clears throat> that's that's kind of strange in and of itself because a lot of these this particular tool, the dark side tool, is known to be very slow and not work very well. And so they paid immediately knowing they were getting a tool that may not even work very well. And, um, and they paid it anyway. And there's some speculation that they paid, um, based on a, a recommendation by law enforcement. And you, you mentioned dark side there. What, what is that exactly? So dark side is, uh, a lot of folks refer to dark side. They're the attacker group that compromised Colonial Pipeline. A lot of people refer to them as a ransomware gang, but dark side is actually a ransomware as a service platform. Now, there it's it's used both ways. It's the platform, but it's also then you know they people refer to that as the group. Uh, the group doesn't have a formal name, but. They, uh, they have several people that run the organization, and then they have their associates that handle the different functions of the attack. Okay, gotcha. And, and the FBI recovered money on this uh, for Colonial Pipeline? Or? Yeah, so I kind of hinted at that just a minute ago. So they, they actually recovered almost uh, well over half, and... and uh, Depending on the the conversion rates, at when Colonial Pipeline paid the ransom, they paid seventy five bitcoins, but the prices dropped significantly. So they recovered, I think sixty sixty four, I think sixty four and change, and the equivalent wasn't the same as what they paid, but it it had more to do with the conversion than it did the FBI not finding all the bitcoin. And are these attackers basically able to just cash out immediately or, you know, as soon as they receive that Bitcoin or is there a typical laundering process? Like, you know, you that's hear about exactly standard right. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, they're going to move that money around and what they're doing is they're moving it from Bitcoin utilizes an electronic wallet and they have what they call a private key. And think of that, the, Folks listening to this need to think of a private key like a password. It's a just a it's a big long number or string. And so what happened is Bitcoin is a public utilizes a public ledger. Anybody can go out and follow a transaction. Now it gets very complicated. It moves all over the place, and it's almost impossible at times to follow. But obviously, law enforcement has a way to do it. They were able to follow it. What nobody could figure out was how they got that private key or that password to the Bitcoin wallet 
where that Bitcoin was stored. And so the race was before they cashed out of Bitcoin and turned that into currency. And you have to be careful doing that as a criminal because it's going to send off, you know, red flags everywhere if you cash out $4 million of Bitcoin. Yeah, that's going to be very noticeable. So they, they generally will parse it out in little pieces and move it around to different wallets so it isn't all coming from one place. But um, before they had a chance to do that, the FBI was able to capture that wallet. They had the key, and they were able then to get that Bitcoin back. Wow. And, wow, that's that's interesting. It's and, actually amazing. It's, yeah. I don't, think it's, I don't know of it ever happening you know, before this. Yeah, that doesn't sound very typical at all for these types of stories. And yeah, um, they, what, what were some others? Uh, I think JBS Holdings had issues as well. JBS USA. So JBS is a an organization, a global organization out of Brazil that is probably one of, if not the largest, uh, food processors. And in the USA, they're, they're meat processors. And JBS USA uh, was was attacked, and they were compromised. And what ended up happening there was they also paid the ransom immediately, and they came out publicly and said, we paid the ransom. They asked for $22 million. We gave them 11 and they gave them the ransom knowing that the key didn't work. And so there's tons of speculation out there as to why they did it. There's thinking thoughts that maybe the FBI told them to do that. But I think what I've read and from different sources, it, it almost sounds like they had confidential data that they said, look, it, we're going to have to rebuild our own network. Your key's not going to work, but we'll pay you so you don't release this data because it was actually half of what they asked for. So it was almost like that double extortion model. Mm-hmm. First model, the key didn't work. The second one was don't release this data. And what will happen is, is they'll say, how do we know that we can trust you to delete that data? And most of these groups will tell you, we're not deleting it. We're going to tell you where it's at. And you can go out there to this remote server and you delete it yourself. And you, know, you just trust us that uh, we don't have copies of it. And so far, you know, it, it hasn't been shown that that they're uh, breaking their promise, so to speak. Now, one of the other things, I've read several negotiation transcripts um, between the attackers and the victims. And one of the things is that they pay for, that you're also paying for, is for them not to attack you again. Because one of the uh, facts or one of the pieces of information that companies are always asking for is, how did you get in? And most of these attacker groups say, if you pay the ransom, we will, one, we will not come after you again. Two, we'll, we'll tell you how we got in so you can fix the hole. And then three, we won't publicly disclose the data. So that's what a lot of these organizations are paying for as well as just getting their data back or having their data not publicly disclosed. It's such an interesting duality of they're clearly criminals, but at the same time, part of their business is built on good faith and, you know, giving you the tools to defend yourself in the future, which is such an odd thing that I don't think we've ever seen before. 
Well, you know, even this dark side group, they first came on the scene. There's there's talk that they've been around since 2019, but the, really the first time that people have seen them and they became known to uh, security researchers was, in, I think, in August of 2020. And they have they have like a published code of conduct. Um, you know, we will not go after schools. We will not go after healthcare organizations and we will not go after. I think one was funeral homes, and I don't understand that. But you know, it's they, they, there's targets that they say they won't go after. They also have tried to make donations to charitable organizations, and reporters have followed followed up. And once they've told the charities that this donation came from a ransomware group, the donations were sent back. But supposedly, they have tried to make donations now. On one hand, they're trying to tell you, we're not bad guys. We're yeah. strictly commercial. All we want is, is money. We don't, we don't subscribe to any hacktivism. We don't subscribe to geopolitics. It's purely a money thing for us. So you want them, they almost are trying to create this image of like Robin Hood, but they also, took down they they could have immediately when they realized that they were taking down colonial pipeline and the impact it had to the eastern uh, united states they could have immediately said whoa uh we didn't we didn't realize that's the extent of this we're we're backing off but they didn't mm-hmm. you know so on one hand you got to wonder if it's a pr trick uh just to make people sympathize with them a little bit but you never know yeah and I, I've read even we've had uh, attacks in our own backyard uh, with the Houston Rockets even. Correct. Yeah. So they were hit with a ransomware attack. And right now the negotiations are still ongoing. So there's been an undisclosed demand. But what it's rumored to be is they have 500 gigabytes of data from the Rockets organization. Now, if you look at the profile uh, the high-profile athletes that are on that team, I can imagine that that's data. There's things in there about their health, and um, you would not want that stuff out. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it, it kind of brings all of this to a good point of many firms and organizations, they see cybercrime as a problem, like you mentioned, just for these larger companies and something that couldn't happen to me. But that's just really not true. And firms of all sizes are, are falling victim to this. And we just hear about these big ones. Um, if someone is listening to this and does not have any sort of cyber program in place, what are those first two things that they really need to focus on right, right out of the gate? So you definitely want to have multi-factor authentication. Um, I mean, that's... That's just table stakes if you really think about it, because what that does is multi-factor authentication requires you to have your password as well as your user ID, and then you have to have that third token. In a lot of these accounts, especially these remote access accounts, if you're using remote access, which the majority of us are now that we're a year into the pandemic, uh, most people are working remotely that remote access should require that third factor of authentication or that, that token. And that's, that would have not allowed these attackers to get into colonial pipeline. 
and a lot of attacks they couldn't get in. The other thing would be, um, you know, like security awareness. Um, I mean, there, there's, you've got to have good backups as well as security awareness. You want everyone in the organization to understand that they could have a 10 out of 10 in their security posture, but if somebody clicks, you know, the wrong, the wrong link, it doesn't matter. And so you want to have backups that are offsite and offline. You want to have multi-factor authentication and you want to make security awareness. Let your people know you're an important part of the team and everybody is part of the cybersecurity team. You have to understand, you know, the risk that you pose to the organization as a user. And you also have to understand that you're a valuable asset to the organization and you can help prevent some of this stuff. And and building on that too, let's say a firm has, you know, they've got a working cyber program in, pl- in place. They feel they've been successful with that. Um, what are two more things that, you know, you would recommend they check immediately to make sure that they, they have in place outside of multi-factor authentication and then that, that um, extra education for users? Yeah, so you want to make sure to keep all of your software and your operating systems up to date. Make sure your patches are up to date. Make sure software is up to date. Um, you know, that you want to maintain, keep your antivirus software up to date. I mean, keep everything where it needs to be. And one of the main things is restrict users' abilities and their permission levels. If you have a system admin, he should have an admin account and he should only be using that account when he's doing admin work. Otherwise, he should be using a user account. Keeps privileges and permissions low, and that makes the attacker work hard. He may still get that elevated privilege, but he's going to have to work a lot harder to get it. If he's able to compromise an admin's account, he's off and running the minute he gets in the door. Mm-hmm. And don't click on you know links. If you don't know where the link is going... Like I tell people all the time at, at our organization, nobody cares about dancing bears and you shouldn't be clicking on anything that, that is a link to it or anything like that. It it doesn't have anything to do with what you're doing and just leave it alone. It's probably nefarious. I gotcha. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Um, anyone listening, if you would like to get in touch with Mike, um, please feel free to contact us. There'll be links below. And uh, Mike, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Briggs and Veselka podcast. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to listen to past and future upcoming episodes, go to our website at bvccpa.com. Thank you.